0: Well, uh, if you listen to Caleb, that was their encouraging verses this week. Uh, so much good news and happiness in that. Hey, if we haven't met, my name's Austin, one of the pastors here. Uh, the American Psychological Association did a nationwide study and found that over 90% of people worry about money on a weekly basis. 90% of people um, worry about money on a weekly basis. They tested four categories of money, work, family, and health, and money beat all of them as the primary source of our stress. I mean, how often do we kind of think, like, if I just had more money, less debt, a better paying job, I'd be fill in the blank. I would, uh, um, I mean, how many arguments in relationships are about money or spending habits or debt or financial planning? And the research also showed that the amount of money you have doesn't make a significant effect on your worry about money tracking with me? So it's like, if you make $20,000 a year versus $200,000 a year, the worry for money innately is the same across the board. More money equals less worry is a lie. And in the words of uh, Notorious B.I.G., mo' money, mo' problems, right? Like, in fact, um, through another research, 80% of people with over a $20 million net worth worry about losing their wealth, 80% of people with over $20 million of net worth worry about it through a lawsuit or other different things. We worry about making money. We worry about losing money. We worry about keeping money. Another study, did my research, research this week, by the U.S. World Report, showed that we're more likely to talk about politics, religion, and relationships more than money. So you see the problem just brewing there? There's nothing more that we worry about than money. Generally, there's no net worth we can attain to escape this worry, and we don't like talking about money. We've got a huge problem, and so it starts to make sense why the Bible talks about money and possessions four times more than it talks about love. And our passage today says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. To be clear, it doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money isn't innately evil. In and of itself, it's our relationship with it that usually is evil. And so here's my prayer this morning. Here's what I want. I want to give you three diagnostics, all of us, three diagnostics to determine our relationship with money. Just really clear here, laid out, kind of where do I land on this, kind of a litmus test. Where do I land in my relationship with money? Then I want to give you two warnings for wanting more, depending on how that diagnosis turns out, two warnings for wanting more. And then last, I want to end on one promise to plant your life in. Sound good? But City Light, what if? Like, what if these verses sunk in and actually changed us to be different from the rest of the world? Like, what if we stopped believing the lie of more money equals less worry? What if we had a right relationship with money and leveraged all of it for the kingdom, for, for meaningful things, for valuable things, and thought way more about Jesus than we do about it? And so here's the tagline for the morning. If you're searching for more, you'll only find less. Okay. If you're searching for more, you'll only find less. So let's start uh, this encouraging morning with three diagnostics to determine your relationship with money. Three diagnostics to determine your relationship with money. Here we go. Now Paul gives three descriptors for us, and uh, gosh, let me see how I can get this over iPads. Uh, bringing up another page. I don't know. I think we got it. Okay, I'm 29. I'm not as tech savvy as you guys. All right, anyways. Okay, so three descriptors for us. Number one, he says uh, desire to be rich. Number two, he says the love of money. And number three, he says craving. So we're gonna walk through those three diagnostics to see kind of where we fit on that. Number one, desire to be rich. Now, this desire to be rich is all focused on direction. Okay, so here's the diagnostic question for us. Does money dominate your dreams? Does money dominate your dreams? Now, when I read those who desire to be rich, I doubt that a majority of us feel like, whoa, that's heavy on my heart. I really feel convicted about that. You know, it's like we kind of have to ask the question, like, well, what does it mean to desire to be rich? Like, what is rich? Like, is there, a, is there a net worth amount? Like, are we talking Elon Musk rich or Jeff Bezos rich or a nice neighborhood in Lincoln rich? Like, I doubt any of us are hoping for that level of, of riches maybe there are a few, Um, but most of the time when we're reading our Bibles, we want clear numbers, don't we? Like, uh, God, I I don't want to be super rich. Like, I don't, you know, I don't need like a million dollar home, but like, gosh, a $400,000 home would be great. And so we kind of read this and we're like, thank you, Jesus. That doesn't say that those who desire to be upper middle class, because then, you know, then I'd just be, Thanks. It says those who desire to be rich, because I don't want to be, but I want to be upper middle. I want to be maybe comfortable, right? God didn't put a dollar amount on here on purpose, because that's not what it's about. And you could have a million dollars in the bank and be totally content from desiring to be rich. And you could have... 2 $10 in the bank, and be completely uh, consumed by the desire to be rich, right? But the word rich here is closely connected to the word accumulate. So think of those two things synonymously. Rich, accumulate, it's the idea of getting more. So desiring to be rich could mean that you're just wanting more than you have. And you could want more if you have $10 or in the bank or if you have a million dollars in the bank. Desiring to be rich is contrasted from the previous verses we talked about last week on contentment. Okay, so he's saying, Skylar preached the message last week, is phenomenal, and contentment basically says in your soul, nah, I'm good, where the desire to be rich says, gosh, I, I could use that. I, I, I could be better off with this. I could use a little bit more. I'm not satisfied. See, I don't think any of us would raise our hand and say, God, I, I want to be rich, um, and so help me with this. No, I think instead we make it sound better. We say, I, I honestly just kind of want to be comfortable right um, and it doesn't sound so bad but the question is like well what's your definition of comfortable it probably has to do something with accumulating more than you currently have well i'd love to get my debt paid off one day and new granite countertops would be nice and uh, and gosh maybe even i don't know a lake house if you could i, I don't know but we go and it's uh, 2 million saved for retirement i don't know what it is but God doesn't give a gray area in this. Either you're content or you desire to be rich. Either you believe Jesus has given you perfectly enough or you're, stri- or you're striving for more. Whether that's more money, more comfort, more square footage, more upgrades, just more. But the word desire here, that word, it is the idea of your will, like what you're, what you're running after. It's the direction of your life. It's the goal. And more accurately, this would be translated those who will to be rich, right? It's talking about your dream for the future. And since we know that being rich simply means accumulating or wanting more, desiring to be rich means planning, scheming, dreaming of having more. So there's the first question for diagnosing your relationship with money. Does money dominate your dreams? Does it dominate your dreams? So as you look to the future, what do you think of? What gets you excited? What do you talk about with your friends or with your significant other? Um, But what do you plan for? Is money dominating your dreams? Now, to be completely honest, I may need the sermon more than anyone else in the room, okay? Uh, uh, And personally, one of my dreams that can be a little bit out of whack from the kingdom is that I really want a house by the lake. Like, it would be awesome, okay? No, don't judge me, right? We're, We're together. And now, I don't think that having a house by the lake is a bad thing at all. I think it would be a totally godly thing. I want to make memories. I want, it to pass, I want to pass it down to my kids and grandkids. I want it, uh, to host people and have fun. Y'all are invited if I ever get it. I want to get away. I started a Venmo account, but it, no, I'm kidding, no. Um, but I, I, I want it to get away from the busyness of life and go and connect with Jesus, right? All those things are good. It, it's not innately bad to, to have something that involves money, to dream about something that involves money. But here's where I go wrong. Sometimes it's all I can think about. It's all I can think about. And I have so much false hope built up about this house by the lake that our fam- I think that our family will have more fun as a family if we have it. I think that we'll be better at hosting people and engaging people. I think that my time with Jesus will be more restful if I can go to a place and just relax. Sometimes I'll lay in bed and just think and think for so long about it, I'll brainstorm on how to make it work, and can I move this around, and what could I do? This is an area that I personally need Jesus to heal me, and to restore me, and to purify me, and if we ever do get a lake house by God's grace, I need to make sure that my hope is not placed in it, that Jesus alone is my refuge, and my rest, and my refreshment, not a physical place. But what is it for you? What what what, what do you dream about? Is it the HDTV fixer, uh, fixer upper farmhouse that you can show off the transformation? the upgraded vehicle with all the bells and the whistles, the immaculate wedding that's picturesque with the dress that everyone's in awe of, being debt-free so you can finally stop worrying about it, the scenic backyard, a vacation home you can retreat to, a comfortable retirement, an inheritance to pass down to your kids, luxurious vacations, a seven-inch TV. Like, what? what is it? What, what are you dreaming about and does it involve, is it dominated by money? I have a friend, um... That planted a church around the same time that City Light Lincoln did, and um, and his wife works as a nurse too. They have I think four little kids, and um, they've been we were hanging out at a at a party, and um, and we were talking about them buying some real estate. They had been flipping some homes, and they had been. Um, uh, working on developing some rental properties and stuff like that. A very common language, you know, it's like, that's awesome. I love that you guys are doing that. We, we talk about that like quite a bit of just, it's helpful to have other streams of income. And, but what surprised me is what she said, actually our, our dream is that we would be the most generous people in our church. And I kind of sat back, I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, we're, we're actually good off of his income. So really the goal for my nursing and then for our real estate ventures is that we could just leverage literally all of it and just be the most generous people in our church. And it wasn't this like competitive, like we have to be number one. It was this sense of like, we just literally want, we want to work hard. We want to accumulate this wealth so we can give it away and build Jesus' kingdom through the church and, and the nations. And I was like, Wait, wait, wait. So it isn't like a retirement plan? Well, no, not necessarily. It isn't like, uh, you know, we want to up. No, we actually love our house that we're in. And it was just so profound. And this is what it looks like, right? To kill the desire to be rich and to live in this desire to make Jesus's kingdom famous. They would work hard, not primarily to build their little kingdom here on earth, but to build Jesus's kingdom. That's what it looks like. To not let money dominate your dreams, but to dream about Jesus being famous and using whatever resource you have to do that. Amen? That's number one, diagnostic. Does money dictate your dreams? Number two, he says in verse 10, if you look at it, He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So verse nine, that's those who desire to be rich. This is for the love of money. That's a different language that we get. So this is all talking about devotion, all talking about devotion. So does money, uh, the question is, does money dictate your decisions? Does it dictate your decisions? Now, money in and of itself has zero value, Like it's just paper in your hand or numbers on the screen. No one loves money. We love what money can do, right? How it can make us feel. Who can gain the respect of what it can buy us and where it can take us. Adventures, reliable vehicles, someone to mow our lawn or clean our house, better health services, experience in travel, security and respect. I heard a friend say money can't buy happiness, but I've never seen anyone frown on a jet ski. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. You know what I mean? Like, we don't love money. We specifically love what money can do for us. And yet it's difficult to diagnose how much we love money or if we love money just in general. It just feels like it's ambiguous, which is why Matthew chapter six is really helpful in this conversation. So uh, Matthew chapter six, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And if you got your Bibles open, verse 24, here's what it says, Matthew 26, or Matthew 6 Verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. You hear those words, serve, love, devoted, despise, you can't serve God and money. Jesus says, if you want to diagnose love, you have to look at what you serve, what you're devoted to. And he says that you can't serve two masters simultaneously, which means when push comes to shove, the one you love more will be the one that you serve. You can find that out, right? So for instance, I love Phil Wickham. Does anyone else here love Phil Wickham, the musician? Yeah, he's awesome. If you haven't heard of him, your life is gonna be changed soon. Uh, Second, I love Ben Rector. Any fans of Ben Rector? Yeah, again, life will be changed. Love both of them. But if they both came to Lincoln, on the same night, performing in different areas, I would go to the Phil Wickham concert, okay? Now I love both, but I love Phil Wickham more, but it would make me choose which one, I would know who I love more based on who I would serve or who I would go see, but one has to lose simultaneously. You can't can't do both, you can't be in two places at one time. This is what Jesus is saying. The way I figure out who I love more is based on who I'm devoted to. And I think a lot of us feel the same way about money and God. Don't we? It's like, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you love him. Like, I'm not trying to argue that. No one's trying to argue that. Well, what he's saying is, you also probably love money. There's a high probability what it can do for you, how it can make you feel, where it can take you. But Jesus says you can't serve both. When push comes to shove, you will either be devoted to God or you'll despise him. You'll either love him or you'll hate him. You'll either show up to his concert or money's concert. Like it just it you. one of the primary ways this plays out, by the way, is decision-making. Like if we're wondering, how is this kind of decision-making? If you wanna diagnose your love for money versus your love for God, you have to ask the question, well, what what does money do in my decisions? Does money dictate your decisions? And so, um Uh, we've hired a lot of people at City Light. We have like about 20 or so people on staff and I'm walking through the process and it's so funny because I'm casting vision, I'm all excited and there's the infamous question that comes in. So um, you know, what's it pay? Well, that, about that, let's, let's circle back to that later. You know, it's like, well, nothing, you know, you you can go raise it, you know, talk to your aunt Sally. Um, but, uh, but, but, but there is that, but not just church stuff, but any kind of job. Doesn't make it matter if it's six figures or it's a minimum wage. There's something about when we're applying for a job we're interviewing, one of the main things we're wondering is what does it pay? Again, not a bad thing, but it seems like it's so dominating to us. It could be a great job, great hours, great company, but if the money isn't great, what would you do? Money seems to be the primary factor in most decisions we make. And I wanna be clear to give a caveat. Money should be a a factor, but it should not be the factor. You tracking with me? Like, consider it, be wise about it. It's awesome, right? But also, don't let that be the dictating, driving factor in what you do or how you live your life. Um, and this is true of Christians, and it's true of people who don't follow Jesus. But where it comes to a head for Christians specifically is when God calls us to something and we refuse it because of money. Tracking with me? So that that's when it comes to head. What are you going to go, Phil Wickham, or are you going to go to Ben Rector? Like you got to choose. And which one are you going to do? So, um, I went to college here in Lincoln at Rascal Weston University, and, uh, um my why I was plugged into a local church here that I love still love they're amazing they're doing great things um And I had a job offer from them after college. I also had a job offer from a company I was working with for six figures. Ended up turning it down. It was kind of a clear thing. I didn't want to do uh, work in the corporate world. I wanted to go minister. It felt like Jesus was calling us to that. So my wife and I moved to South Africa, kind of delayed the decision. We lived there for a while. We're serving there. And this church says, hey, here's the option. We'd love for you to lead worship. We'd love for you to lead young adults. And kind of here's the salary package of what it'd be like. Well, it's, again, that's not what the company was, but this would be great. It'd be great to be paid, whatever, awesome. So that kind of sounds like a deal. But then this new church plant called City Light in Omaha calls me, my friend Chris. Hey, Austin, we, we, what would you think about uh, coming to Omaha and uh, working for us and lead worship for the college ministry? I was like, man, that, that sounds really, really cool. And, you know, we're, we're church planting. We'd love to, you know, however that goes. I, this sounds fun to be a part of that culture. Cool. What does it pay? Well, about that, uh, nothing, you know? And so, okay, and so what, what do you mean? Is it like a volunteer? No, it's a full-time thing, okay. And uh, so what do I, well, you're gonna call, you know, your gra- you got a grandma? Yeah, I got a grandma, I got a couple of them. You're gonna call them, you're gonna ask them if they wanna kind of support you as a missionary. To do this. Okay, so how much, like, well, to, it's a whole thing. And I'm like, all right, man, well, let me pray about it. No, you know, like, no, I, mean, I turned down one, I'm not gonna turn on the other, you know? And uh, so that was kind of it. And we literally said no to City Light. We actually said no. Like, I can show you the message. And uh, my buddy, Andrew, responded, and he said, no, I'm not gonna accept no for an He literally told me no. He's like, no to my no. He's like, I, think you're, I don't think you're making the right decision. I don't think you're operating the right way. And so Kristen and I, when we're living in Africa, we're trying to do all this stuff over like Zoom, Skype, whatever, is before Zoom, I think, but... Um, Anyway, so we did this 24-hour prayer thing where we just get away with Jesus and we just pray, and God was like, just deeply convicted me that I had been operating out of the love of money, that I I just, I mean, it was the factor that decided what I was going to do, and I felt like he was pulling my heart towards City Light, but I just, I said no because the love of money, I just love money, you know, it didn't have to be a lot, it just was better than nothing, and um, and so we said, I mean, I want to fight that, I want to repent of it. And uh, we said no to the church here in Lincoln and said yes to City Light, and then we're here today. It's kind of crazy, right? Um, um, That's kind of some of my story, right? But also, let me tell you another story of a guy named Ethan Weekamp. Now, if you're familiar with Ethan, he pastored, helped pastor our church for about a year, the last year. Now he's in O'Neill. By the way, they're doing great. Him and Tara and the kids are awesome. We love them. They're making disciples in O'Neill. It's great. But when I hired Ethan... He was working at a company here in Lincoln as an executive. So he's like one of the top guys. He's overseeing a whole team, and he's easily making six figures, okay? So I remember talking, calling call Ethan, and I'm kind of like shaking, dialing, number, like, please, God, please, God, and give me boldness, you know, and give him favor. Hey, so uh, we're doing the interview, pro- and just so you know, we haven't really talked about money yet, but here, here's kind of the number I'm thinking. Guys, I'm pretty sure it was probably a third of what he's making, maybe a quarter. I'm I optimistic that it was a third, but it might be a quarter of what he's making he's the primary income earner in their family so think about whatever however your life is structured losing two-thirds of it and I just go hey here's kind of the number our elders talked about this is even us stretching but we want to bless you we love you and he goes cool that sounds great yeah whatever man we don't really care Actually, can we go, drop that number a little bit? The whole thing. And I was like, but I was like, what? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, man, it's never really been a factor. Like, we, we've made a bunch and we've made nothing. And God's always provided. We've, all, we've always seen it join him. And I was just like, I just, it felt like the weirdest conversation I'd ever had because I've never had any of those conversations. It was just like, what? And you're not talking about like, and I think it's a huge sacrifice for a young adult. You're talking about a a guy that's 40 years old that's married and has four kids. You're talking about all the entitlement that comes with like, I should be paid this. It was the most wild thing, but this is what it looks like. I don't love money. I don't serve money. When push comes to shove, God's gonna win every time, right? He's not gonna dictate my decisions. This is what it looks like. So does money dictate your decisions? Are there clear options in front of you that would be more glorifying to God more helpful for your soul, more um, loving for your family, more growing for the kingdom, but money is holding you back. You can display your love for God and fight the love of money by allowing God to dictate your decisions. And the last one is the end of verse 10, and it's the word craving. So he says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, right? Craving. Craving. It's all talking about discipline. So here's the diagnostic question. Does money distract your dedication? Does money distract your dedication? Now, speaking of uh, cravings, my wife and I have uh, three little kids. Gracie's four, Haddon's two, and Eden is seven months. And Kristen grew all of them in her belly somehow and delivered all of them. She's a hero, right? Um, but she had some deep pregnancy cravings, okay? And they were always the same for all three pregnancies. Number one, Arby's Curly Fries. Like they just hit different when she's like third trimester, you know? They're the best. Number two was uh, Dairy Queen ice cream. Like a blizzard, it was like a cookie jar blizzard or something like that. She just, and I just knew, and I would pull up and they'd see my vehicle, they're like, why... Here you go. They at least knew. Like, cookie jar blizzard. I'm like, yeah, it's 11. I'm like, dude, sorry. I don't know. Yeah, all right. And then Hurts uh, Donuts. Hurts Donuts. And so it'd be like 11.30. We're laying in bed, and she's like, oh, I'm just craving Hurts Donuts. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, um, you, like craving, like you want me to go? Yeah. All right. All right. Cool. Grab the keys. Be back with a dozen donuts. You <laughs> know, <It's> like, <laughs> they're like, you again? I'm like, yeah. Wife's, you know, a month away, so I will see if this changes. She might be Getting diabetes, I don't know what's gonna happen, but something, but but uh, but that those were her cravings, right? And I just was, I was like, yep, yeah, go ahead. I gained fifteen pounds every pregnancy, but um, anyways, because I'm like, yeah, give me a blizzard too. You know, <laughs> that sounds good. I'm gonna eat a Jesus donut from her donuts, anyways. Um, uh, but so with Gracie and Eden. Kristen went full send on it. She was like, full send, bro. Like, let's just go, let's do it. But with Haddon, she actually uh, had gestational diabetes. I don't have time to explain what that is. But basically what it means is you have to have a controlled diet through pregnancy where low sugar and low carbs, okay? Her nightmare. So just to be clear, low sugar, low carbs means no Arby's Curly Fries, no Dairy Clean Blizzard, and definitely no Hertz Donuts, okay? And so Kristen was like, she had that craving still, though, in all her pregnancies, but she had to fight that craving. She had to dedicate herself to this. Diet to keep Haddon healthy in the womb, and so he wasn't like a 12 pound baby, and so um, uh, which benefits him and her. But anyways, um, <laughs> but this is a di- this is a diagnostic for determining your relationship with money. What does it distract your dedication? Do you do you crave it? Is it like in this this like almost animalistic, like just this sense of it just I just want more of it. Like I just can't get it off my. I can't get off my mind. Do you crave it? Now, verse 9, uh, if you look, Paul says, um, If you desire to be rich, for those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and this is key, into many senseless and harmful desires. So, senseless and harmful. Senseless and craving go hand in hand. Senseless means that your senses are compromised. You don't think straight. You lose sight of reality in the midst of your craving and your discipline is thrown out. And you compromise to fill that craving. Now, Harvard University, if you've heard of them before, they did a study about this. And they found at Harvard that um, the more you think about money, the less you think about morals. Okay? They found a direct correlation with Uh, focus on financial increase leads to integrity decrease. That's what they found. So basically, money makes you do things you normally wouldn't do: cheating on your taxes, ripping someone off. And the 1st doesn't say this. The desires are senseless, where you throw those out, but they're also harmful. The craving for money often leads us overworked and underconnected, and it harms people and it harms us. I watch some young adults in our church just pour everything into work, and they distance themselves from community. Oh, I can't be in Citigroup, you know? Job goes that, or, or, or and I'm like, yeah, I get it, and maybe it'll change. Yeah, or, or I'm on this project that makes sense. You can miss well next week. I got it too. I mean, just this whole thing. I watch parents uh, overwork in the name of provision. I, I you know I work hard to make sure my kids are provided for. No, that that's not what provision is talking about. Provision is financial, but it's also emotional. It's also quality time and deep conversations. But craving money distracts us from our dedication. I want to be a good dad, but I've also I also want to make money, and, and, and so I might work late another night and have mom put the kids to bed alone. Um, But one of the main ways this craving shows itself is impulse buying. Have you heard of impulse buying, right? It's kind of this like funny hashtag, like a playful thing when you buy something. So just got a new car, hashtag impulse buy, you know, just just bought this new king bed, you know, hashtag impulse buy, just bought that thing waiting in line at Target, hashtag impulse buy, hashtag they got me again. You know, it's like this crazy thing. And I have made way too many impulse buys in my life. Like that's like, okay. But An impulse buy is a craving purchase. It's feeding into that craving for more without considering the ramifications. And if your goal is financial freedom, if your goal is generosity, it takes discipline to get there, and impulse buying distracts from that. They distract from our dedication. These craving impulse buys leads to senseless and unnecessary purchases. They lead to conflict in relationships um, or... and it's one of the main reasons that we encourage a budget. Like a budget is like this very, very normal thing, but it's, a budget is telling your money where to go rather than running where it went. And it's just helpful. So I know it's not as cool as hashtag impulse buy, but what if we started saying hashtag I budgeted for it? You know, it's like hashtag save for it for two years, finally got it, you know? It's like, it's just different. Like dedicate your money to valuable purposes. Dedicate your money to eternal impact, the stuff that'll last forever, not the stuff that you'll end up selling at a garage sale for 25 cents. So three questions. Does money dominate your dreams? Does money just dictate your decisions? And does money distract your dedication? Now verse 10, look at that again. It says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So what it says basically is money is this root of this and it builds this tree that grows out and from this tree is every kind of evil you can think about. You can root wars back to it. You can root genocide back to it. You can, write, you can root slavery back to It's this love of money. So that's true. All these kinds of evils can lead back to the love of money as a stem or a root. But I think he's also specifically saying that two of the biggest evils are actually done to you and it's describing them in these verses. Uh, the two of the evils are, are that it, it plunges you and, and you get pierced by it, right? So, so I just wanna walk through these two warnings for wanting more. And he says, you'd be plunged and, and pierced. And so verse nine, let's read it again through. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Okay, okay. So it's a slow process of being plunged. So you have a temptation, you fall into a snare, and then you end up getting plunged. I think of a plunger for some reason I say that, but don't think about that, okay? So anyways, um, but if that's a bad image for you, then keep that, because it's the same thing. But anyways, um, so let me just walk through this process. Number one, fall into temptation, a temptation is just a pull, it's a current, it's a draw, that's leading you somewhere that you don't want to go. And just think about the love of money, money in general. We are so tempted by it. From our family, maybe the way we grew up, our family, our parents just valued money, dad worked hard this whole thing, could save, talked about it, fought about it. And so there's this mindset in you of like, oh, I need to have money, and and my parents fought about money, and if I have money, it means I won't fight with my spouse or whatever it might be. We have pressure from our friends, it's all we talk about, it's the metric that we uh, celebrate, it's what we focus on. We have pressure from culture. Culture just tells us that lie that if you have more money, you will have less worry, you'll have a better life. We have feel this temptation pressure from social media. It's it's glamorized that wealthy people just have a better life. And we see it and we go, I want that. Well, the key is they're wealthy. I'm not. That's what needs to be changed. It's a path that everything is pushing us down. Then it says the temptation leads us to a snare. Now, I grew up in Southern California. I don't know what a snare is. Then I grew up in McCook for a little while. But again, I was like in the town. Is the whole thing but I started watching a show called Alone. Any of you seen it? These people, survivalists, whatever, get dropped off middle Arctic, have to survive for 100 days. It's this thing. And one of the primary means they have for getting food is setting snares. So I just learned about it a couple months ago. A snare, the word this uses... Common day, I don't know if it's different about 2,000 years ago, but a snare, you would have this wire and you would wrap it around like a solid branch. Any farmers in the room or hunters or whatever, let me know if I'm going off wrong, but you would tie it around this consistent, stable branch or this tree and it would go and it's almost invisible and it would come and you'd create this loop in this snare. Again, you don't really see it and it would be through a path. And the moment anything touches that snare or that, that loop, it closes. And so a little sweet bunny comes through and it just goes boom and then it and then it's done, like it just gets, it's, gets choked and that's, that's the end of the story. But what's crazy about the show is the best time to set a snare was right after a light snowfall because a light snowfall would show tracks. So they would go out to set the snares and they would look and they would see where all the bunnies run and they would go oh, this is exactly where I need to set it. And so they would see, oh, they, they go through here. This is well trafficked, And there, they'd put a snare right through there and right over here. And they go, oh, it's gonna, the, we know bunnies are gonna go because this is the path that's well-trodden and they can see their footprints. And so they'd set the snares and they come back the next day and there's like four bunnies there you track them with a the spiritual connection, it's like there's this path, this temptation of the love of money that we're running down. Like just, we don't even know. And yet there's this snare that Satan has set for us, that the enemy has set for us, and we're just hitting it every time. It's like unavoidable. And a snare is a surprise. Nobody's ever like, yeah, I hope, you know, I hope I don't run into a snare through that path. You know, it's like, it just it just shocks you. It just surprises you. And it's, and it's there. Um, so we, 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 we're we just caught up in that. And then it says the snare leads to people being plunged. Now, this is crazy. That word plunged, it's only used one other time in the whole Bible, and it's in Luke chapter five. Now, Luke chapter five, verse seven, if you know the story, it's Jesus and Simon, Peter, for the very first time getting to meet Peter is in his boat, Simon's in his boat, and Jesus goes, hey, he's teaching, he goes, hey, you know, Simon, throw out your nets, cast your nets, he goes, all right, cast them out, and they catch the biggest uh, catch of fish in ever. Like, it's just crazy, and what happens, another boat has to come, and they're pulling this fish, and they're pulling it onto their boats, and it says in verse seven, specifically, um, that uh, it, it filled the, the fish filled the boats and began to sink, okay? That word sink is the same exact word in the Greek, To plunge, sink, plunge, okay? And why were they sinking? Because they had so much on their boat that they couldn't hold it and it was starting to sink. City light, the average house built in the 70s was 1,600 square foot. The average house now today in 2021 is 2,600 square foot. So it's a 1,000 more square foot that we have for an average family in America at home um, for more space, 1,000 more square footage to live, to move, storage, whatever. But also there is 2 billion square foot of storage units in America today. It's a 40 billion a year revenue business storage unit. So just track with me. We have bigger houses than we ever had. 1,000 square foot extra from 40 years ago. And additionally, we have more storage units that are being built, and every single day. It's just crazy. It's a 40 billion revenue a year, 22 billion square foot. We accumulate more and more, and we are sinking. And the saddest part is the things that we're holding onto that are filling our proverbial boat are future garage sale items. They're fading, they're rusting, they're devaluing as we speak, and yet the snare is set, the boat is sinking, and a majority of us don't even see it. And we can't. Over the mountain and the pile of our possessions, we are blinded and unaware of how bad the love of money affects us. This is a warning to throw out whatever you need to to free yourself up from unnecessary weight. It's not worth it. Verse nine says, we plunge into ruin and destruction. That is literally, the language there is a sinking ship to hell, like a ship sinking to hell, eternal separation from God, ruin and destruction. So is more square foot really worth giving up the room that Jesus is preparing for us in heaven? Like, like is an exhilarating experience here on earth really worth forfeiting the hand of God wiping away our tears? Take this warning seriously. Like we, we just have to. The love of money leads to being plunged, and so if you're searching for more, you're only gonna find less. And the second warning here is in verse 10. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Uh, verse 10, it's, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This, so again, same thing, slow process of eventually being pierced. You have a craving, you wander away, and you get pierced. It's the same process giving us a different analogy. So the word wander here very simply means to move in a leisurely, casual, or aimless way. Uh, So I usually on Friday mornings have the kids and give Kristen a break. And so I took the kids to Lost in Fun. If you've been there in Southeast Lincoln, it's awesome, or Southwest Lincoln, it's awesome. And uh, so we're at Lost and Fun. We're having a blast and little Haddon, little Mr. Two-Year-Old, I can do whatever, is gone. Okay, and he's like just obnoxious. He's crazy. And I'm like, oh, Kristen's literally gonna kill me. And I hope my son's okay. But I'm also very afraid of what my wife's gonna do to me if he's not okay. And so anyways, I'm like, this is not gonna be good. And so I'm searching, parents are searching because I'm the only dad there, a lot of moms are there, and they're all like, you know, it's just me and them, you know, and they're all, they're looking, workers are there, and I'm like, the doors are there, I'm like, did he sneak out, did someone grab him, I'm so nervous, and he's in the back on this little bouncy house, like, he's literally inside the bouncy house, and I, like, open the door, I'm like, he's like, hi, dad, dad, I'm like, are you literally kidding me, like, what, what were you doing in here, He just, like, nothing happened, but he'd wandered away, he moved aimlessly and he ends up far from the father. That, that's, the, that's the imagery that's giving of wandering away. Wandering isn't intentional. No one sets out thinking that searching for more will get them less. Wandering means it's slow right? It didn't happen immediately. And, and, and wandering means it was an accident. It was like, we didn't plan on this, but it just happened. It's a subtle drift away. And it says that we didn't just wander, but we wandered from the faith. So we've all heard stories of someone slowly distancing themselves from their spouse or their kids or their friends. It's all heartbreaking, but there's no greater tragedy than drifting from God. And to wander from the faith means that at one point you were lingering around it. To wander from it means you were, you were there, you were around it. And in Luke chapter eight, we're gonna study this in just a couple weeks, get to preach on it, but it's the parable of the sower and the seeds. And here's what Jesus says. He's explaining it, Luke eight, verse 14. He says, and as for what fell, he's talking about the seed among the thorns, those who hear, they're around it, but as they go on their way, wander, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. They're choked out by riches, And that word pierced, it literally means impaled. Like it's this graphic image. And with many pangs, it's essentially another word for regret. It's just anguish. And so there's this story in Luke chapter 16 of Lazarus, this poor man, and a rich man. Lazarus and the rich man. It says the rich man eats these amazing meals, and uh, he, uh, and then Lazarus is like poor. He's sitting by the gate, and he just has sores all over him, and he says, if he was ever hungry, he'd just eat the scraps from the rich man's table. Now, eventually, they both die. Uh, Lazarus goes up. He's in heaven, and, um, and the the rich man ends up in hell. And it's like this narrative of what's happening between the gap of the two. And it says that the rich man specifically is in torment and he's in anguish. Anguish is that same word for pang. Ang- like this, this anguish, this regret that's happening and he's looking up and he's seeing it. And he just, would you just dip your toe in this? I'm in torment. Would you just give me a little bit of relief? And no, it's, it's fixed. Like there's no thing. And they say, you received your good here Right? Whatever good, you received it here. But, but Lazarus, he, he only received bad, and now he's comforted here. Listen, it's almost like you saved up your whole life to see Machu Picchu in Peru, but as you start your hike up, you go blind and you can't take in its beauty. Or, or you go to Noma in, in Denmark. It's the number one restaurant in the world for the last 10 years. You make a reservation a year out. You plan, you save, you get there, and they have to close for food violations. It's like you work your whole life to become the vice president of the company and, and you only find in your first meeting that you're bankrupt and everyone's losing your job, including you. It's like you spend $100,000 on your dream wedding and no non-refundable and your fiance decides to end the relationship that morning. It's like you finally fi- finish building your dream house and that the day you move in, a tornado comes and tears it down. It's a great tragedy because what you've worked so hard to attain, you, don't, you can't enjoy. The moment you finally get to grab it, it crumbles. You have to look back at all you've sacrificed, all you've given for it, all you've compromised, all the hours you've worked, and you have nothing meaningful to show for it. You're pierced with many pangs looking back in all the regret from all the decisions you had to make. Matthew sixteen twenty six, Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his soul, but forfeits his soul? If you're searching for more, you're only going to find less. And I just have to say City Light, I am so afraid that this is not going to change us. Like, I... And this isn't because I don't have faith in you. I love you. I believe in you. It's because I know myself. I know my own propensity. And this is such a core DNA worldview that's so ingrained in us. It would just take, it's gonna take a long time if we really wanna repent of the love of money, if we really wanna be changed. But I promise Jesus can do it. And I promise it would be life-changing for our whole city and for us as a church. And so if you were going, I know that we aren't changed by fear. We aren't changed by warnings. We aren't changed by getting a diagnosis. We're changed by grace. We're changed by the beautiful gospel. And so I just wanna end very briefly on one promise to plant your life in, and you have to hear me with this. One promise to plant your life in, and it's Hebrews chapter 13, verse five. Now, to give just a little slight thing, I've quoted the end of Hebrews 13, five more times than you could ever imagine, but I, for some reason, never knew what the first part of this verse was. So here it is. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Keep yourself free from the love of money, verse 10. Just the, straight from it. Oh, and by the way, be content with what you have, verse 7 and 8. Like, it's almost like he knew, first, 1 first Timothy 6, whoever was writing Hebrews and went, okay. And then he goes, I'm going to follow that up with I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Why is that significant? Talking about these things, friends, because money will leave you. Possessions will leave you. They fade, they rust, they get burnt in a fire, they decay, it just, money will leave you. The moment it hits your hands, it can leave your hands. The stocks can crash. Your house that you think you have equity on, that can change. Money can leave you. Oh, and by the way, you leave money. You, we, don't, we We just go to our funeral in a hearse. That's it. It's like just in a casket. That's all we can't take money after. So we leave money. And God's saying this beautiful promise, I'll never leave you though. Money will, possessions will, whatever you're fighting for, whatever you're leveraging your life for, whatever you think about, money will, but I won't. I'll be with you. And it's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus knew there was such a deep grip of the love of money on our souls. And plenty of other sin, but he left his beautiful rich throne of heaven. And 2 Corinthians 8 says that he left it and became poor for our sake because we were so consumed with being rich. He left his riches of heaven and became poor so he could meet us in our desire to be rich and he could die for us. He knew the tragedy that what we would do, that our dreams would be dominated by money, that our dedication would be distracted by it, that our decisions would be dictated by it. And he said, I wanna die for these people that are willing to die for their money. I'm gonna die for them as a better God that would never leave them in their place for their sin. I'm gonna die. And what's crazy is the two warnings are you'll get plunged and you'll get pierced. The beauty of the gospel is Jesus was plunged in death. He literally plunged himself into the grave for you. Isaiah uh, 25 verse eight says, Jesus swallowed up death. He swallowed up death for us. He was plunged by it so that you could float, so you didn't have to sink into him, you could float and experience relationship with him. Isaiah 53 verse five says, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. And so he, he actually took on the pain that we should have experienced so we could be whole, so we could be protected. This is the beauty of the gospel. Money is a terrible God. Jesus is a beautiful God. We would die for the God of money for some reason, and yet God died for us in place of our love of money. This is the gospel. It's actually what changes us. So I'm just begging Jesus that he would lead us to change, lead us to repentance, so we wouldn't just walk away, but that we'd actually make a change, and the Spirit would convict, and the gospel would beautifully guide us. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, this is heavy. This is hard to talk about money, um, but it's, I just am so confident that it's necessary and that you're going to do a work through it. And so, God, I just pray that you would, um, Spirit, um, help us diagnose uh, our hearts, our relationship with money. If it is dominating our dreams, God, help us dream about you. If it is dictating our decisions, help us be devoted to you and choose you. If it is distracting our dedication, God, let us be focused on you. Give us eyes to see you and uh, and let our eyes actually see the, the distraction. This isn't worth it. Um, God, I pray that those warnings would sink in, that we really, uh, a picture of our lives would be this ship that's just full of so many amazing things, but it's out in the ocean and it's sinking. And uh, I pray that we would just know that, God, you were plunged into death um, so that we don't have to be. Um, and, God, I pray that we would this warning that we could be pierced with many regrets and pangs would hit us. That would just hit us and go, man, I just don't want that. And we know that you were pierced on our behalf. Jesus. Sink the gospel in us. We want to plant our lives in that promise that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. You're a God who's faithful. You're a God who's stable. You're a God who's consistent, and you're a God who holds us and uh, that died for us. That doesn't. Um, and so I, yeah, just pray that you would change us, God. Do whatever you need to do, but move us, transform us, change us. We want to be different, and we want to love you more than we love money. In your name, Amen.